two objection to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, today uh, that we're recording this is February the 4th, a Saturday. You are listening to this for the first time on Sunday, February the 5th, and again on Monday, February the 6th, when it's rebroadcast at 11 a.m. Happy Black History Month! Um, for our first song that you heard um, as the intro, that was The Difference by Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who sadly died at age 32. Uh, this 7th of February would have been his 49th birthday, so RIP to him, and happy Black History Month again, and how are you, Matt? I am doing okay. Um, it is cold here in New York City. <laughs> Uh, the radiators are full blast, and I am staying indoors. Yeah, I, I know that's right. I'm also staying put. Like it's, it's nice to be able to, you know, have the option to stay inside. So definitely Absolutely. feeling for everyone that's been stuck out in the cold. Yeah, as it was moving in last night, my husband and I were like, "This is like the worst time for anyone to not have access to a shelter, at least." And I hope everyone was able to stay safe. Yeah, same, same. And Janet, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm also dealing with the cold. Been so strange that the temperature dropped from like 30 to 4 very briefly and then is now going to pick up to 40 so quickly. Yeah, it's going to start feeling like spring again pretty soon, like wet and rainy and too warm. Yeah, although I think, what, did the groundhog not see his shadow, right? I forgot it was even Groundhog <laughs> Day, so I, I couldn't I know. tell you. <laughs> it feels like Groundhog Day in so many other ways lately. It's so true. Okay, so this week, um, Matthew will be telling us about our local news story. I'll be handling the national news, and Janet will give us a world news story. And, you know, we'll also do a good news story at the end, so we'll, we'll bring some of that energy back. It's been a while. So first off with our local news story, Matthew. The uh, news story that I'm going to be uh, talking about, reading and talking about today, uh, it comes from NBCNews.com. Um, it was published February 2nd, 2023, and it's written by Matt, I apologize for the mispronunciation, Lavietas. Um, the headline is patrons of NYC gay bar incapacitated and robbed of thousands via facial recognition on their phones. Three men who visited the New York city gay bar were robbed of thousands of dollars using facial recognition access on their phones. The New York police department confirmed on Thursday. Um, the three men who were in their late thirties and forties visited a Chelsea gay leather bar, the Eagle NYC on separate nights in October and November, and were each robbed of one thousand dollars to robbed of one thousand to five thousand dollars, according to NYPD's Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. No arrests have been made, and the investigation is ongoing. Uh, authorities said police believe the criminals used facial recognition to access a victims' phones and funds once they were incapacitated, according to Captain Robert Gold of the city's tenth precinct, who spoke about the incidents at a police community council meeting last week. What we think is happening with this scheme is they're being lured away from the club, maybe to say, hey, you want to come with me? I got some good drugs, or something like that, Galt said. And then once they get into a car to do whatever it is they're going to do at some point or another, 
they don't know what happened when they wake up. A 19-year-old female and a 42-year-old male were visiting a New York City bar that is not affiliated with the LGBTQ community. Hotel Chantel were also robbed in November and December by the same group of criminals, a police spokesperson said. When asked how the authorities were able to link the five incidents to the same group, the spokesperson added, all five cases had the same MO. Gold said that authorities were able to locate the license plate, vehicles of interest, and at least one phone number connected to the suspects in the incident connected to the Eagle NYC. Neither the Eagle NYC nor Hotel Chantel responded to, to NBC News' request for comment. In January, the Eagle NYC posted on its Instagram account security footage of two men interacting with bar patrons outside the venue, writing, Do not take rides from these guys. We are told that they have someone in a car around nearby street corners waiting for these guys to bring someone. The Eagle NYC added in the since-deleted Instagram post that it reported the known offenders to appropriate authorities. The police spokesperson said the incidents at the Eagle NYC and Hotel Chantel are not related to any other patterns to any other pattern of robberies happening in the city. The recent robberies bear a resemblance to the cases reported by NBC News in November of Julio Ramirez, 25, a social worker, and John Umberger, 33, a political consultant who were targeted in similar fashion and suffered unexplained deaths. On the separate evenings of their deaths, Ramirez and Umberger were seen leaving the New York City gay bars with groups of men before their bank account bank accounts are drained of thousands of dollars using facial recognition access to their phones, according to their family members. At the time, the NYPD revealed the police and the district attorney's office were investigating several incidents where individuals have been victims to either robberies or assault, in which some, but not all, were members of the LGBTQ community. On Monday, New York City's Office of Nightlife held a webinar directed at the city's LGBTQ community, promoting safety precautions for bar patrons in light of the previously reported robberies. Officials advise bar patrons against using facial recognition technology to secure their phones and to alert friends of their whereabouts. Um, so a pretty grim story um, that's pretty current. Um, gets into a few different aspects. Uh, this is all based a lot on police reporting. Um, and it's even a little more troubling that clearly there were previous incidents reported. And even with all the billions of dollars afforded to them in their budget, they still make no headway in solving these cases when communities are targeted so heavily. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts? Um, my first thought, and it's we before we started recording, Matt, Matthew, we were talking about Siri and stuff and how I don't like yeah. it. And my first yeah. thought was, I remember like back when the George Floyd protests were happening, there was a lot of um, circulation of just different tips about like if you're going to be out in the streets like certain things not to do and one of them was like having because so much of our stuff is on our phones like having something where it's like a fingerprint or your face leaves you very open to like the police or whoever like putting you in a position where they just stick it in front of you or like they can force your finger to go and then everything you have on your phone is wide open. So the facial recognition aspect of it to me is what's particularly chilling because there is no, that's such an easy thing to do. Like if someone is passed out or someone just isn't all that sober, like it's very easy for anybody to be like, oh, and then they have access to all of your stuff so that it's very, um, 
it's spooky. And I think the fact that that is such an easy thing is what makes it so scary to me. And it's such a common thing now for people to unlock stuff with their face or their fingerprint. And it's, it's hard to know what to do to prevent it other than to not use that feature. Yeah. I think um, this conversation reminds me when kind of, Apple was kind of really interesting, like, the, and not even Apple, all of them were introducing facial recognition um, and kind of the focus of, like, oh, the security and, like, the unsafe side of this is someone maybe has your likeness in a photo and they're like, no, look, it's very secure without that. But then no one, like, I never had heard any discussions around the fact of, oh, what if someone just, like, knocks you over the head or, in this case, drugs you and just they have you. They don't need a picture of you. And then it's even more dangerous in that aspect. Um, and even just these people know what they're doing. Like they are targeting, targeting a specific bar, um, that may cater to a subset of the LGBT community. And they are really just, yeah, taking advantage of it. Um, and the cops are just also not doing anything about it. And it's very scary. Like, and even it's fascinating that the cops are like, you shouldn't, use your facial recognition and as you said like it was actually a tactic come up like that was kind of being said if you're going to a protest you should turn it off because the cops will use it against you and it's we are in a very big police state a big surveillance state and it's very scary um and now we kind of see some of the major consequences of what that all means and i mean wear a mask people like they are capturing your identity regularly. There was a story currently of the woman who was in a lawsuit against um, Madison's. Was it? Yeah, it like she went to like her daughter's yeah, event or something, yeah. and the guy doubled and tripled down, like mm-hmm. that he wasn't he wasn't backing down off of the actions they took. But that was some real dystopian shit. Yep. Like, and they she didn't know they had her likeness, but they did because. I guess, and I don't know, however it is, and they program it into their software, and there's so much money involved in this. Like, it's part of war, so I'm sure there's a lot of dark money, there's contracts, there's military aspects to this. There is a lot of money in this, and it's going to be used against us. We see the robots coming up. Um, do you don't think they're going to use that uh, programming inside a robot that's armed with a weapon? Like, they're already using it, probably. Um, and it's like, kind of baseline criminals are using it the government can absolutely use it right and like we already know that any type well for one thing i was gonna say also is about these particular assailants targeting um game it seems like they're targeting gay men in particular like at specific bars it's like you also have the element of like them knowing there might be people who are less likely to report something happen afterwards out of fear of like maybe being outed or being, you know, judged for having been doing X, Y, and Z. So they can, they feel they can get away with having, you know, robbed these people of so much money, which is that adds another element to it. Um, but they do mention, I do, I remember that bar hotel Chantel. It's not, not my cup of tea, but I, I have been, taken there before (laughs) and i know the type of place that it is like that part of the city it's like yeah that you're right for that type of thing happening to you yeah and woman straight get like it will go down because the area 
of the eagle is like it's a little off the main road it's tucked away a little bit so easy to kind of just like it's a, there's some alleyways and stuff there but then as, as you said like the eagle is a kink bar it's a leather bar um notoriously places like this would get raided by the cops so why would that be the first place you go to yeah like it no, there sucks. Are... yeah it sucks because like you're supposed to feel like some sense of security or like being able to like let your guard down but you know there's people that can and will take advantage of that which is you know it's terrible it's very sad and uh, like it's all correlated to uptick and hate crimes across the border going up so it's all in line where we currently are and it's it's very scary so everyone needs to be extra aware like make sure you tell people where you're going if you're going to use drugs test your drugs um get your drugs from like reputable sources uh you gotta just be be on your guard um because people are out there to hurt us and the lgbtq community we're like we're pretty under attack right now um it's pretty prominent so scary time people and take care of yourselves and your friends and strangers everyone deserves to be safe yeah, you got to look out for each other and look out for yourself because, you know, the people in charge of doing that are clearly not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything you can do to be more secure, keep your friends safer, like, please do it. Uh, so for our next uh, musical break, or this is our first, really, uh, this is a song by the only artist who have won the Grammy for Album of the Year with three consecutive album releases. This is Stevie Wonder with Mistra Know-It-All from his 1973 album, Inner Visions. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. He's a man. With a plan, got a counterfeit dollar in his hand. He's missed know it all. Playing hard, talking fast, making sure that he won't be. He's the coolest one with the biggest mouth. He's just a know-it-all. When you tell him he's living fast, he will say, what do you know? If you had my kind of cash, you'd have more than one place to go. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. 
We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, I will be sharing the national news story. Uh, so I'm reading most of the article um, and it's as it appears, but some parts have been cut for the sake of time. Uh, this was written by Amanda Seats on January 31st of this year. This is uh, from the Associated Press. How will life change once the COVID-19 emergency ends? Uh, and going down a little bit, here's a look at what will stay and what will go once President Joe Biden's administration ends the emergency declarations on May 11th. COVID-19 tests, treatments, and vaccines. The at-home nasal swabs, COVID-19 vaccines, as well as their accompanying boosters, treatments, and other products will still be authorized for emergency use by the FDA once the public health emergency is over. Insurers will no longer be required to cover the cost of free at-home COVID-19 tests. Free vaccines, however, won't come to an end with the public health emergency but the Biden administration has said it is running out of money to buy up vaccines and Congress has not budged on the president's request for more funding. There are questions around what many states vaccine supply will look like going into the fall when respiratory illness typically start to spike, said Ann Zink, the president of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Medicaid. The federal government prohibited states from removing people from Medicaid during the public health emergency once they had enrolled. The program offers health coverage to roughly 90 million children and adults, or one out of every four Americans. Late last year, Congress told states they could start removing ineligible people in April. Millions of people are expected to lose their coverage, either because they now make too much money to qualify for Medicare or they've moved. Many are expected to be eligible for low-cost insurance plans through the Affordable Care Act's private marketplace or their employer. Immigration at the border. Border officials will still be able to deny people the right to seek asylum a rule that was introduced in March 2020 as COVID-19 began its spread. The end of the emergency may bolster the legal argument that the Title 42 restrictions should no longer be in place. The emergency restrictions fell under health regulations and have been criticized as a way to keep migrants from coming to the border rather than to stop the spread of the virus. Telehealth. COVID-19's arrival rapidly accelerated the use of telehealth, with many providers and hospital systems shifting their delivery of care to a smartphone or computer format. The public health emergency declaration helped hasten that approach because it suspended some of the strict rules that had previously governed telehealth and allowed doctors to bill Medicare for care delivered virtually encouraging hospital systems to invest more heavily in telehealth systems. Congress has already agreed to extend many of those telehealth flexibilities for Medicare through the end of next year. Food assistance. 
Relaxed rules during the COVID-19 public health emergency made it easier for individuals and families to receive a boost in benefits under the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Some state and congressional action has started to wind down some of that. Emergency allotments, typically about $82 a month, according to the Food Research and Action Center, will come to an end as soon as March in more than two dozen states. Food help for unemployed adults under the age of 50 and without children will also change after the public health emergency is lifted in May. During the emergency declaration, a rule that required those individuals to work or participate in job training for 20 hours per week to remain eligible for SNAP benefits was suspended. That rule will be in place again starting in June. SNAP aid for more low-income college students will also draw down in June. Money for hospitals. Hospitals will take a big financial hit in May when the emergency comes to an end. They'll no longer get an extra 20% for treating COVID-19 patients who are on Medicare. The end to those payments comes at a time when many hospitals are under financial pressure, struggling with workforce shortages and dealing with the pain of inflation, said Stacy Hughes, the executive vice president of the American Hospitals Association. 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 Uh, so again, that was on uh, the Associated Press, Amanda Seats, How Will Life Change Once the COVID-19 Emergency Ends? Um, and I encourage you to read the full article for some of the things I had to skip over. Um, but yeah, like I know I've, I've written to my representatives and all of that about not wanting the public health emergency to be ended officially you know, I doubt very seriously that that will do anything, but I hope that there's more pushback against it because I, it's really, it's a bad sign. You know, the World Health Organization continues to recognize that we're in a pandemic that's affecting the globe. So for this to be ending so soon, I think is definitely a move in the wrong direction. I also, it's, Yeah, I don't understand how, I mean, I do understand how so many people have moved on, uh, like, it's all based in money, like, it's beyond human health and what it means for society, like, disability advocates have been shouting from the rooftops from the beginning, no one's been listening, and slowly but surely all these kind of rollbacks of COVID protections have come to fruition, like, they're here now, um, and as far as, like, the wealthiest of the wealthy people are concerned, COVID is over, back to making money. Um, we see it at work. Like I see it at my job. Um, and what's absolutely wild to me is that there's so much resentment at the upper ranks of these places not understanding who suffered the most, or not even caring who suffered the most, um, and the failure of the government, um, and just the adaptation uh, abdication of responsibility of like societal well-being um, and caring for the public and the people who pay the taxes and just the citizens of a country um, is absolutely insane to me and even the cherry picking of 
emergency declaration powers, like the Title 42 thing at the border, where they're going to cherry pick it and be like, well, actually, this was still working to whatever benefit we want it to, so that can save. Uh, It's absolutely ludicrous. And it's uh, the red states who are fighting to keep those kind of immigration protections in place while saying, oh, because of COVID, but then in public and saying that COVID's over. Like, it, it, it's just pure hypocrisy, and they don't care anymore. Um, it doesn't matter that the numbers of that people dying from COVID are increasing, whether they are higher than they've been. Um, writing, living in New York City, riding the train, it's like people just no masks, just nothing. Open coughing. I, I don't know what to do anymore. Um, that's very scary. Um, and I'm sure there are people who are just unable to go anywhere uh, because they don't have the ability to. Um, the thing about this public health emergency being cl- declared over is the vast majority of people are very much like swayed by what individuals in authority tell them. So this ending, I feel it opens the door for so much more hostility and pushback against anyone who is still taking the virus seriously because you no longer have something backing you up um, on the national level, you know, because when you try to challenge people who don't want any type of precautions or they don't want to extend certain benefits to people like working from home and things like this, this now give, puts a battery in those people's backs to say, well, the president declared this is over. So why should we have to do da 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 da? And that's what I'm, you know, staring down the barrel of. And it is, it's pretty daunting because it makes your job so much harder to get people to pay attention to what's still happening. That, like, I've been doing so much reflecting and like thinking about COVID overall and like how they're declaring it over. Uh... And even, like, I've learned so, and have watched so much and learned so much about, like, the, the way even a mask works, like, the, mis- the fundamental misunderstanding of how the basic science of a mask works, a good mask. Uh, and even people thinking, like, oh, of course I could just order from Amazon without thinking that there are people who don't know what they're doing and they're scamming you out of your money and that does not mean you're going to be protected the way you say you are. Um, and it's all, like, information literacy, scientific literacy like critical thinking skills um and even at that level like working in uh higher education i still hear very educated people highly educated people say very incorrect things about covid um there was someone who was like walking around they're like oh i'm not gonna put on a mask i just had covid so i have some immunity and i'm gonna ride that wave and i was like fundamental misunderstanding of what this is and how you're dealing with like no, that's not correct. When you leave people up to their own devices, you leave the door open for so much misinformation, confusion, mm-hmm. and then you erode trust in the institutions that are supposed to keep you safe. And the thing that worries me is that it's beyond just COVID because people have seen people on the right and people who are anti any type of collective action, any type of social safety net, they see these wins against any type of collective action against COVID as a way to then push the agenda of like getting rid of other things like other like vaccine mandates for like measles and polio 
And like, if you can get enough people to not fight back against the idea that we should collectively work against preventing illness when it comes to a novel virus, how are you going to maintain any type of commitment to like other things that we take for granted that we prevent, like smoking indoor? Like that was a thing recently in Congress, like people making a big statement by like, I'm going to smoke inside or like not drinking and driving or other things that we do to like prevent heart disease or to look into what causes different cancers. If everything is just up to like your own personal lifestyle decisions, as you know, so many have accepted with COVID, I think it really paves the way for a lot of other pillars of like population health and like community health that we've been taking for granted to just be eroded day by day. And that to me is very disturbing because COVID will not be the last threat like this that we face. We already seeing what's going on with this bird flu jumping now from Mm -hmm. the birds to the mammals. And guess what's a mammal? Human beings. Mm -hmm. Like there's already been some cases of that. You know, it's like people aren't taking this seriously. So, you know, the next is going to be like, well, what are you worried about? It's just the avian flu. Like, Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you saw, it was, I think it went viral. Uh, his name's Ben Collins. He does some, like, I think he does a lot of, like, work. He's maybe NBC. But, like, he had this tweet of, like, at some point, like, that, uh, the tweet, it was talking about how the anti-vaxxers have unfortunately won. Like, they have really, and it's getting to what you were saying of, like, there's a point where so much of this, with the, the public uh, emergency declarations being dropped, it does give credence to what they're saying of like no it's fine because if the government doesn't take it seriously why would anybody else like you're like leaving it up to the individual just does not work especially here in the um in the united states of america a lot of that ground has been conceded by the democrats themselves but the second half of that tweet was is it worthwhile still fighting fighting this information like what to what like is it worth it and it was very defeatist but i was like no it is worth fighting back still at some point but knowing how to package the message and root it in community and like uh, community care, it can it is a successful thing because people do want to build their communities. But if your leaders are failing as they currently are, and if they're all in it for money and their own gains, of course it's going to feel like we've lost. But very much so, we also have to become a collective in the fight against the takeover of school boards in what's happening in Florida with like the banning of books. There has to be a concerted community pushback in the way that they are organized. We have to organize. Um, but if we can organize on the grounds of what's right for humanity and society and community and caring and uh, protecting your loved ones, that is a much more powerful message to be spreading. Because all these people are coming at is like it's vitriol and hate, and while that's very enticing to a lot of people, and it's easy if we can build foundations on the other side, we can. But it has to start now, and there are like the things that you're talking about, like the mutual aids, um, getting involved in your local communities, and starting from those small things because it's where we have to start. Um, it feels very much hopeless at a governmental level because that's just a bunch of fuckery, to be honest. Like. So, yeah, like, I absolutely think, like, there's work to be done. There's people already doing it. Um, Like, I would recommend uh, getting on the People's CDC mailing list. They're P-E-O-P-L-E-S. 
cdc.org. You know, like think about and reach out to people that are already doing something. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like there's already like-minded individuals out there trying to do the right thing. So instead of just throwing your hands up and complaining, you know, do something about it because we do still have a, a ways to go. But I think it's it's a matter of time before it becomes like undeniable that this is something we have to face. And it's just where we're transitioning, I feel, mm-hmm. you know, but at some point it's going to just become inevitable to face like the scale of what is happening every day. Yeah, there is consequences to misinformation there's consequences to that we aren't even seeing yet but with climate change i mean with more viruses on the rise with the inability to eradicate current viruses uh yeah educate people talk about it keep your masks on hand out masks i carry extra masks and i think trying to come judgment free it's taken me a while but just it's Spreading the word as a community is what's going to help. Um, do what you can. Talk to the people you love. Get vaccinated. Get boosted. And stay safe. Yeah, because like as you said earlier, like it is, you know, in this country, the God is money. Money and the individual. And, you know, it's not at all people nope. first. So nope. I was texting with my mother and I, we were talking about something else. And she was like, yep cream c-r-e-a-m and i was like what like what are you talking about cream and she went cash rules everything around me i was like ma i know what that is i'm wondering why you of all people is typing that to me that's not in the bible uh it should be the apostles wish they could write that that's poetry I know. And it, unfortunately, it, it's very true. You know, money is it's all about the almighty dollar. So mm-hmm. for our next musical break, it's the woo with cash rules, everything around me. Cream, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Cash rules, everything around me. Cream. Yeah. Check this old fly shit out. Word up. Cash rules, everything around joint. me. Cream, get the here money. We, here we go. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Yeah. I grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. Staying alive was no job. Had second hands. Moms bounced on old man. So then we moved to Shallon Land. A young dude, you're rocking the go-to. Low goose, only way I begin to G York was drug loot. And let's start it like this, son. Rolling with this one and that one. Pulling out gats for fun. But it was just a dream for the team who was a fiend. Smoking rules at 16 And running up in gates and doing it by high stakes Making my way off fire skates No question I was speed for cracks and weed The combination made my eyes bleed No question I would flow off and try to get the dough off Sticking up white boys on ballboards My life got no better Same damn low sweater Times is rough and tough like leather Figured out I went the wrong route So I got with a sick ass click and went all out You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at 
facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and now we have janet with our world news story So the article that I'm going to be reading an excerpt from is called How Modern Day Slavery in the Congo Powers the Rechargeable Battery Economy. And this article is actually a summary of an interview that Terry Gross had on her show Fresh Air, which is on NPR. And her interview was with Siddharth Kara, um, who recently published a book called Cobalt Red. So the article begins, smartphones, computers, and electric vehicles may be emblems of the modern world, but, says Siddharth Kara, their rechargeable batteries are frequently powered by cobalt mined by workers laboring in slave-like conditions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Kara, a fellow at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and at the Kennedy School, has been researching modern-day slavery, human trafficking, and child labor for two decades. He says that although the DRC has more cobalt reserves than the rest of the world combined, there is no such thing as a, quote, clean supply chain of cobalt from the country. In his new book, Cobalt Red, Carr writes that much of the DRC's cobalt is being extracted by so-called artisanal miners, that is, freelance workers who do extremely dangerous labor for the equivalent of just a few dollars a day. You have to imagine walking around some of these mining areas and dialing back our clock centuries, Carr says. People are working in subhuman, grinding, degrading conditions. They use pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar to hack and scrounge at the earth in trenches and pits and tunnels to gather cobalt and feed it up the formal supply chain. Kara says the mining industry has ravaged the landscape of the DRC. Millions of trees have been cut down. The air around mines is hazy with dust and grit. And the water has been contaminated with toxic effluents from the mining processing. What's more, he says, cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe, and there are hundreds of thousands of poor Congolese people touching and breathing it day in and day out. Young mothers with babies strapped to their backs, all breathing in this toxic cobalt dust. Cobalt is used in the manufacture of almost all lithium-ion rechargeable batteries used in the world today. And while those outside the DRC differentiate between cobalt extracted by the country's high-tech industrial mining companies and that which was dug by artisanal miners, Kara says the two are fundamentally intertwined. There's a complete cross-contamination between industrial excavator-derived cobalt and cobalt dug by women and children with their bare hands, he says. Industrial mines, almost all of them, have artisanal miners working, digging in and around them, feeding cobalt into the formal supply chain. Kara acknowledges the important role cobalt plays in tech devices 
and in the transition to sustainable energy resources. Rather than renouncing cobalt entirely, he says people should focus on fixing the supply chain. We shouldn't be transitioning to the use of electric vehicles at the cost of people and environments of one of the most downtrodden and impoverished corners of the world, he says. The bottom of the supply chain, where almost all the world's cobalt is coming from, is a horror show. The article that I was just reading from, as well as the original interview that Terry Gross did with Siddharth Kara, are both accessible on the NPR website. So, yeah, what an intense topic. This is something horrific that um, all of us who have smartphones, computers, and all these objects that use the lithium batteries are carrying. And how many of us knew that this was how the source of our batteries, um, like what, what, um, where the source of our batteries was coming from? Yeah, like it's something like I was aware of it, but I think it's it wasn't not until like relatively recently that this is like a component. And I think it's been more. I think it's been coming up a lot now that there's been more talk about pushing to doing like electric cars and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, that's that's, definitely a key part of this for sure. It's like trying to boost um, that as an idea. Like there was a different, uh, I think it was on the media and they were discussing um, electric cars and the guests that they had on were saying that part of the problem is trying to, trying to change the way we do things without actually changing it. Because like, if you're still in a car dependent way of living, it's like you kind of just trade one set of problems like for another, as opposed to trying to think more creatively about like the way that things are set up around having to drive everywhere is the key problem. Cause like then you're just kind of shifting it like yeah maybe it's not as bad as burning fossil fuels in one way but then if the payoff is that people are in these conditions to create the batteries like that's not good either yeah. like that's not an acceptable trade off yeah and i i think i you know i kind of in general have a notion that the the products and the globalization that we have there's somebody in some country being exploited um, but in this situation, it's it seems like almost all of the cobalt comes from one place. And the cobalt industry has completely torn apart the Congo, where the interview went on to talk about how, you know, the the landscape has been totally destroyed and there's no checks and balances um when they not only is the mining itself horrific to the people there, but when they process the cobalt, they use sulfuric acid and other mm. chemicals to process it. And they're not, um, there's no regulations. It's just completely devastating the water systems of the country. So they're not only for the people living and suffering now, but they're creating long-term pollution problems, long-term landscape problems, where when you take away the entire forests of the country, um, the, you know, the soil can't be held down. So it's, it's really 
cataclysmic. And if this is in the name of something like we're trying to go greener in the other parts of the world, it's really quite hypocritical. No, absolutely. Like I, uh, like I, I don't really know what the solution is because there are like not just in the West, but even in a lot of parts of the global South. Like everyone has a smartphone or a cell phone or some type of mobile right. device. So it it it's so ingrained in the way we live now that yeah. I wish I don't understand how it would happen. I'm not that good in science, but it's like there has to, there has got to be a different way to power these things, like something. Like I can't. Yeah, I think he, um, this is Siddharth Kara in his interview was talking about how, um, you know, the industrial side of this is also bad, but at least to be thinking about the humanity um, what's happening right now is that there are poor, hundreds of thousands of poor workers, and these are not just uh, adults. These are a lot of children are being brought into this mining and getting extreme injuries or dying from the mining. Right. Um, like the article said, not only is, is the, the cobalt poisonous, but they're mining in the most primitive conditions with, um, tunneling that is not stabilized so there's lots of tunnel collapses as they dig so people are being killed in avalanches of gravel and all these things and the companies basically are accepting through mediary merchants the products of all of these people that um again Kara kind of says is a modern form of slavery because they're basically working in these horrific conditions and the monetary gain is so little it's almost nothing so these people are enduring these conditions what they find goes through several mediaries and ends back up in the industrial company's hands so their profit is totally entangled in this web of human catastrophe and so his his mission and in writing this book is to expose the human crisis and also to um, have the public, all of us using this cobalt, whether we know it or not, to demand that the industrial um, companies need to separate this artisanal mining so that there aren't the human factor involved in the most dangerous form of this mining. Right. And like it, it, it just it's also another reminder, like Africa is not a poor continent. It's a very, very rich continent. And that's why right. it's it's, you know, the land and the people are taken advantage of and exploited violently and have been for so long because it's you right. know, people are making untold amounts of money off of this. And where is that going? It's not going to help the people. Yeah. And the the interview mentioned that there had been one democratically elected leader that wanted to put the profit back in the hands of the people, but that these companies are so powerful that they were basically they kidnapped the president and they cruelly and viciously murdered him. And the he was replaced by a dictator that's beholden to these companies. So it's really a complex web, but because the world is so global and because this economy 
the economy of the cobalt is coming from all different countries, especially um, the article mentioned that China was actually the one who bought off a lot of the industries. So they have a big hand in it. And then all of the rest of the countries are purchasing it. So we're all entangled in the current situation for the people of the Congo. And we need to kind of be aware of it and, you know, think about how to, as a people from all parts of the world, to demand better. Like when you live in the global north, like there's so much that people think of in terms of like time and being in the past when it's not really in the past, it's just, it's been exported to another place. Like children working in these conditions, like people in these horrific mining situations, the way food workers are treated, garment workers. I think sometimes people think like, oh, the triangle shirt waist, or like they think about like, oh, back before we had labor laws and stuff. And it's like, it didn't go away it's like it made things better for people in certain places but then it just got pushed off onto like well we can keep doing this in this other part of the world where the people don't have those protections but exactly yeah it's like we we think oh we don't have slavery the way we used to but we still are contributing to slavery and our products, be it the clothes or the food, like you said, the coffee, and now all these electronics, we're basically, you know, in some ways still slave owners in some sense because our products are on the backs of people who are not paid for their work and are enduring these life-threatening conditions for us and our needs. Right. Or are they even needs? Like, that's the other thing. But, you know, because we are in this capitalist, you know, economic system, all it exists to do is to expand and make a profit. That's it. It doesn't matter at whose expense it happens. Like, that's the only way it can continue. So. And the disposable mindset that we're in and we're all guilty of, I mean, people upgrade their phones like you know, 15 years ago, like the phones were totally different, totally more simple. And an iPhone was something special. And now, you know, X years later, people are like, oh, I have to upgrade to the new phone right away. Right. Every phone that you dispose of, that means that not only, you know, is it a waste for the materials in it, but that the people who literally may have died to put the cobalt or whatever ingredients into that phone, you you know, we use it as if it, it's only worth a year to us or something like that. So it makes it all the more kind of wrenching to think about this situation and how we're all connected in the global world. Right. I mean, I do think that is a good first step is to be aware of it. And I I think I said in the first story with Matthew or in the second story that you can't underestimate how ignorant a lot of people are just and it's by design, you know, right. like it's really so I, I do think I do feel like at some point there is going to be a change. We're just not at that point quite yet, but. Yeah, there must be. I mean, there has to be. Yeah. When the world is coming full circle back to slavery, I mean, 
let's hope that we we rally to this cause and with capitalism how far it's taken us in the wrong direction i hope that people do kind of wake up to the situation and yeah for sure so as promised at the top of the hour i'm going to talk about a piece of good news for a change it's not really my mo Um, But I will say, I think I've said it before on this show, one of the bright spots in the news for me is anything that's like a win for organized labor, Um, like union victories and progress has a special place in my heart. So I'm just going to read a few excerpts from an article in The Gothamist by Elizabeth Kim. Um, And the title of the article is In a shift, City Hall will consider hybrid work, Union says. Uh, So again, I'm just going to read a few pieces of this. Uh, City Hall has agreed to consider municipal workers' demands for a hybrid schedule as part of ongoing contract talks, marking a significant shift in its stance toward remote work, according to a municipal union. Previously, the city had made it clear that they were not interested in negotiations regarding telework or hybrid schedules for the union's members, wrote Carl Cook, a vice president for negotiations and research for SSEU Local 371, in a letter to union members. However, after the persistence of the union and its representatives, the city has changed its position and will now review the demand. Mayor Eric Adams had previously drawn a line in the sand against allowing city employees the option of working remotely for part of the week. He has argued that the city needs to set an example for the private sector, where the return of office workers is seen as critical to the survival of the business districts. The mayor has also expressed concern that such an arrangement would be unfair for essential workers who cannot work from home. Which that really... That that gets on my nerves, like just that whole argument. So yeah, like again, you can find the full article um, on The Gothamist by Elizabeth Kim. It's not over yet, like the negotiations are still happening, but it's definitely progress. Um, I used to be a city worker uh, not that long ago. And um, they have a Instagram page that city workers the number four NYC, where they've been documenting the struggle really throughout most of the pandemic. Uh, And one of their latest posts says, a quick thought re-telework being on the table per union discussions. By no means are we declaring victory or believing this is the end. We have to secure this first and also ensure we continue fighting for all the other important things city workers need. Your skepticism towards the mayor's motives are valid, but let's use the potential shift towards telework as a building block to keep moving things forward. Loving all the discussion and appreciate you all more than you possibly know. Exclamation point. So, yeah, like, I think this is a good, you know, when you fight together, you can win. Like, you can get things and push people, but, you know, if you have a united front, you have a goal and you're persistent. Um, these things are possible, you know, even with a Batman villain mayor like the one we currently have. (laughs) You know, the more places that are pushing for general improvement in working conditions, pushing for 
unions to be in in industries where they haven't previously. I think the collective effort of that definitely can sway the people above to see that the tides are turning in a way that when only one place is pushing on its own, maybe they still feel the resistance still feels more powerful. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think consciousness raising is a huge part of the struggle. And like, I think the more people start to understand that they're being exploited, that, you know, hey, my boss doesn't care if I live or I die. You know, I think that woke a lot of people up. And it's not just you in your home or in your town or even in your country. Like, it's a global struggle against, like, the powers that be because nobody has to be living in the conditions that we see people in right now. It doesn't have to be this way. There's a different world that's possible, but you have to be willing to push for it. And I think it's good to, you know... It's usually not one person, but many at the top that are enabling these situations. Like there can be exposure that these figures that have had all this prestige and they're wealthy and they have names and addresses like everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, it's not God. Having a public that en masse kind of rejects some of this behavior and some of the models for workers, um, I think that can make a difference. Yeah, for sure. So on that, you know, somewhat, you know, cautiously optimistic note, this has been Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based local radio. And we're going to play you out for another Black History Month track. And this is Smokey Robinson in the Miracles. You've really got a hold on me. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. Bye. Bye.